Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a brand new episode of All Steak, No Sizzle, an honest, no BS look at life, sports, and entertainment. I am your host, Devin McKenzie, here once again, after a long time, with a brand new episode of Podcast Gold. Um, This episode is one of a series of episodes from the archives that I never put out, one of the lost episodes. Um, This conversation is with me and my Uncle Bobby. He is the pastor of the Macedonian Missionary Baptist Church in Albion, Michigan. Um, This took place, oh man, it had to be like 2016. I went over to his church and uh, had a conversation with him. And, you know, we talked about his growing up down in Mississippi, um, going through the equipment school system, uh, his life down there in uh, the Rocky community, his upbringing and this this episode was pretty long, so I broke this one up into two parts. So this first part is mainly us talking about, um, you know, his growing up and, you know, being a child down there in Mississippi. Um, ironically, as I'm putting this episode out, his birthday was yesterday or the day before. I forgot. But I want to wish my Uncle Bobby a very, very happy I'm not going to say how old he is, (laughs) birthday. Uh, I thought to myself, what's the best way to, you know, put my first episode out after (laughs) who knows how long than, you know, to put the episode out that I did with my Uncle Bobby. So So here's my conversation with Pastor Bobby McKenzie of the Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church. to the show. This is All Steak, No Sizzle, and I am your host, Devin McKenzie, and I have a very, very special guest today, a gentleman that I'm uh, quite familiar with, and uh, hopefully you'll get familiar with him in the future. He is one of the greatest African-Americans to ever live, <laughs> first man to ever pilot an aircraft. He is the pastor of the Macedonia Missionary? Yes. Missionary Baptist Church here in Albion, Michigan. Mm-hmm. He is also my uncle. Mr. Bobby Joe McKenzie, how's it doing? Uh, it's going very well, sir. It's good to be here with you. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate you doing this uh, interview with me. Absolutely. Um, well, first, let me give a little bit of a background of what I'm actually doing. Um, I've been doing basically two series of shows. One is uh, basically talking about racial issues that's going on in the United States. and. Mm-hmm. Who better to talk to than a person that is of the cloth, a man, a, a leader of a black church in America. So absolutely, definitely want to get your opinion on certain issues dealing yep. with that. And also, um, doing a series of shows, I don't know if you know this, but my mother was a part of the first graduating, integrated graduating class in your hometown, Equipment, Mississippi. I did not know that. Yep. So I'm doing, I started off interviewing her, and after talking to her, I realized that there's a lot more going on with that story. So I thought I'd interview different people that grew up in that town from different generations, you know, people that are older than my mother, younger than my mm-hmm. mother, just to get an idea of how it was growing up in Equipment, Mississippi. Absolutely. So who better to talk to than my, my uh, uncle, who can kill two birds with one stone. So once again, thank you for uh, doing this. Thank you for having me. All right. So first, I want to get an idea of what it was like growing up in Quitman, Mississippi. So as a child, what was your childhood like growing up in Quitman? You know, it's it's funny because my childhood was great. Um, when you think back on it and you think about uh, what you just shared with me, your mom was of that first uh, graduating class that integrated. Those things for me were, quite frankly, they were lost on me. Right. Um, we had family. We had work, we had fun, and we operated in a system that, quite frankly, you just kind of understood that's what it was. Okay. You never really thought about it. So for me growing up in Quitman, Mississippi, and more direct, the rocky community of Quitman, Mississippi, the backwoods of Mississippi, as you well know, right. um, it was great. It was absolutely great. And just so the listeners understand, what, what was rocky? Rocky was, um, at that time um, in Mississippi, when I say at that time, when there were coming out of Jim Crow and coming into um, where our forefathers started to own their own properties, 
a lot of times those properties were in the very rural areas. And so uh, we say Quitman, Mississippi. That's simply where I went to school. Right. Quitman was about good 25 miles from where we live, from where I actually grew up. So we always called it town. Okay. And so we went to town when we need to, but otherwise we were out in Rocky, in the Rocky community, and man, we, we loved it. We absolutely loved it. So what kind of people made up the community of Rocky? Who was out there? Well, Rocky, it was, a, it was primarily a farming community. Mm-hmm. So uh, a few families that had a lot of kids. <laughs> <laughs> and we were definitely one of those, as you well know, my father, your grandfather, Jim McKenzie, uh, he and uh, my mom and your grandmoms, uh, Ella Gray McKenzie, they had 14 kids. I being number 13 or 14. And then in that same community, um, my uncle, my dad's brother, Washington McKenzie. So 18 of them? 18 of them. Well, it was actually 19. They had 18 kids and they adopted one. Oh, okay. Believe it or not, the reason they adopted one because they thought they couldn't have kids. Really? (laughs) So they adopted one and then they had 18 kids. And so we grew up in the same community right down the road, if you will, from each other. But you had other families, other pockets, if you will, of families that were of various sizes and uh, worked hard, farmed, uh, lived off the land, grew livestock to some degree. And, you know, we just lived. Wait, so in your childhood, were you working in in the doing the farming yourself? Mm. What kind of work were you doing? Well, the way our family worked, um, it kind of depended on what your birthplace was. Okay. And so the older kids, once you got of some age, everybody worked in the field, so to speak. So everybody had to help with planting crops and gathering crops and all that. Mm. But our core professional uh, vocation, if you will, for our family was uh, masonry was construction. Right. So my father was a bricklayer. His brother was a bricklayer. And then uh, a lot of my cousins, my brothers, they do this uh, a lot of that construction work. Right. So once you got to a certain size, you went to work with daddy. Okay. But before that, you stayed at home and worked with mama. Okay. On the farm. So you was out there in it. And, man, she'd get you up in them hot summer days about <laughs> 6 o'clock in the morning talking about you better get up before, the, before it get too hot. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, it was already hot, but you had to get out there. And so um, my primary working, if you will, up until I was almost a teenager, was working uh, at home uh, on the farm, so to speak. And then I went to work with some of the construction guys. Okay. Uh, This is kind of a question I just want to know personally. Like, What was was Paul Jam and Ann Gray like for you coming Mm -hmm. up as a child? What, What was their dynamic? as far as, you know, mm-hmm. their relationship and you dealing with them mm-hmm. at that time? Um, my daddy, Jim McKenzie, he was, believe it or not, now you wouldn't know it kind of in your lifetime, quiet. Huh? Wouldn't talk. <laughs> really? Wouldn't talk, man. Just his presence, though, was large. Okay. Daddy didn't have to say anything to you, man. All he had to do was just kind of be there. And if he messed around and said something to you, like, oh, my God, like you straighten up. Right. Because the family structure was so strong and so tight that it was just his presence, man. So I grew up. um, I didn't have heroes outside of my house, outside of my family. My hero was my dad and my heroes were my older brothers, your your father, including uh, included in that. Your Aunt Gray is actually your grandmama. Right. <laughs> but mama was the disciplinarian. Okay. She was the one that, that ran things as far as keeping us in line and all that. I, I never got disciplined by my father. Never in my life. Okay. Because you have to. All he had to do was say something to me, and it was automatic, man. I was on it. Okay. I was on it. So the dynamics was kind of like that. She was kind of the, the louder one, and she was the one that was going, yeah, she would get with you. But daddy's position was so solid mm-hmm. that all he had to do was basically just be there. Or if he happened to say, he, he may say something like, you, you need to stop that. That was it, man. It was no question. Wow. And that was from top to bottom, from my oldest brother, Willie, <laughs> all the way down to my youngest brother, David. Wow. All right. So during this time, I would imagine that being in the South, that you were going to church. Yes. So what was a uh, church li- life like down there in Quitman, Mississippi? Church was non-negotiable. 
<laughs> every Sunday morning. So there was a church in the community mm-hmm. um, that was um, particularly in that era of time. There was no such thing as integrated church. Okay. So it was 100% segregated. So the uh, those in the community who are 100% African American, uh, there were there were actually three churches originally in that community. Believe it or not, really, a uh, community of about 250 at this at this peak. Mm-hmm. But more like about 125, 130 people. There was a Baptist church, a Methodist church, and what they call back in the day a sanctified church. Okay. Yeah. So that sanctified church eventually closed down. But um, you primarily went to one or two churches, Mount Gilead Baptist Church, which I was a member of, born and raised there. Right. Or uh, James Chapel uh I think it was an AME. I think it was an AME, but it was a Methodist church. Okay. But every Sunday morning, non-negotiable. Man, you could go out. You could party. You can do whatever you want to. But at 945 <laughs> on Sunday morning, when Ella Gray looked around, you better be sitting in that pew. Okay. And that was non-negotiable. So how important was uh, Mount Gillian and basically all the churches in that community? How important was that to the community? It was the. It was actually the foundation. Um Churches and and religion was the was really your way. Well, it served it served a couple of purposes. Church uh, is not like church is now because society is not like society was. Right. Society was very simple at that time, and so you worked on the farm or you worked and whatever you did, but you didn't see a lot of people during the week because everybody was working. Right. And so church was not only your uh, your foundation spiritually. It actually was your foundation socially. Okay. You weren't going to see a lot of people until Sunday. Everybody was coming to church. And that was the thing. Everybody went to church. So young, old, male, female, if you want to see somebody, go to church. Right. Because they were going to be there. And church served as a way to catch up, to kind of figure out how everybody was doing. And also, obviously, that, that spiritual base. Okay. Well, question along those lines did church also serve as sort of uh i guess you would say a meeting place as far as things that were going on in the community mm-hmm. as well as the whole town mm-hmm. okay reason why i asked that is because um i was talking like i said i was talking to a couple of people about mm-hmm. the integrations of the schools mm-hmm. and what i found out was that my mother graduated in 1970 so that's when they forced integration mm-hmm. but apparently there were letters going around to mm-hmm. people that if they wanted to go to Zach Huggins, which was the yep. white school at the time, yep. they could, you know, send their children to that school. Yep. So would the church have been a place where people in the community got together and said, okay, should we send our kids to Zach Huggins mm-hmm. or um, should we keep them at Shirley Owens, which was the black mm-hmm. school at the time? This Basically, the church would be in that place where these conversations yeah. would have the, So place. the church, I, I talked about the social aspect of it, uh, but one of the other things that the church would would always have provided, especially then, it was your central location for communication. Right. And so the probably the NAACP and, and those other groups, those other civil rights groups that were mobilizing the people for integration, mm-hmm. they would simply send a representative or send a letter to the church. Okay. And in the announcements, that's how everybody knew what was going on. So the announcement wasn't uh, we having Usher practice on Tuesday, right. it was also, this was the way you got news uh, about whatever was going on or whatever you needed to do. And then there was, there would usually be a meeting. As a matter of fact, I remember when the NAACP um, would send a representative out for whatever important thing was going on, and they would actually contact the church leaders, mm-hmm. and they would call a church meeting. Really? And they would meet them at the church sometimes to talk through that stuff. And then that conversation may carry back over into the homes, but it started at church. Uh, You might have been too young at the time, but do you remember any of those meetings as far as the integration integration issue? Integration had already taken place, so they were well integrated by the time I I came along and had any kind of awareness because my my first year of, of, of public school, my first grade would have been in I think it was like 1974. Okay. Something like that. So they had been integrated for a, quite a few years. Okay. So you never you never went to Shirley Owens. Mm-mm. You probably never really. When I went, I went to that building. Right. 
but it wasn't Shirley Owens. At, at that time, it was the middle school. It was for the middole, middle school, yeah. City. So okay. they called it junior high. So I, I spent my sixth, seventh, and eighth grade years at that building. But by that time, they had far, far removed any evidence that Shirley Owens had ever been there. Wow. Do you, do you know what the name of the school was, the middle school was at that time? Was It Zach? It was simply called Quitman uh, uh, Junior High. Okay. Yep. Okay. So during your time in, in elementary school, you went to what school? Quitman Elementary. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at this time, things had already been integrated. Mm-hmm. So during your time there, do you remember any any incidents of racial discrimination or being treated differently by other students or teachers? No, no. It, it's, it's amazing to say it, but no. Um, by the time I entered first grade, um, there was, it was definitely well integrated. I went to class with uh, Caucasian uh, classmates as well as African-American. We simply sat by alphabetical order, and everybody just, they did their thing. It, it was I, I didn't feel any of that. Okay. So the the city of equipment in general, do you kind of remember what, like, the racial climate was when you were very, very young? Mm-hmm. Can, can you describe that? The, so we were coming out of Jim Crow. Right. And I didn't understand Jim, Jim Crow at that time. But what I can specifically remember, there was a time, and I remember at the courthouse in Quitman, um, there were it was still marked they hadn't taken the signs down even though it wasn't strictly enforced right the colored water fountains and the white water fountains the colored bathroom and that's literally say colored water fountain wow and i can remember seeing those signs right but it wasn't strictly enforced even though that's where we went to if i need to get some water i was going to that one but it wasn't strictly enforced Really? Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to go to the whites only, they still had the whites only signs? It would just, it would still have that sign there. All right. But they wasn't, by the time I came along, they wasn't strictly enforcing it. So if we really wanted to go, we might get a look, mm-hmm. but nothing happened. Okay. Nothing happened. But those signs were still there. Hmm. So let's just say you were thirsty, you wanted mm-hmm. to get a drink of water, and you said, hmm, I'm going to go get, go to the whites only water fountain mm-hmm. legally nothing would happen to you but people might start looking at you that, funny yeah they they there were still some some glances um by the time i came along a lot of that more traditional segregation uh it was starting to dissipate mm-hmm. but the other piece of it though Devin, you got to understand man growing up in mississippi you just knew what to do and what not to do. Right, and that's kind of what I was trying to get to. Like, it's, it's not like it was strictly enforced by law, but in your head, it was still there. You weren't going to do it. Okay. That was just some things. Man, if I got thirsty and I needed to go to that water fountain, then I wasn't going to be thirsty no more. Wow. That's just the bottom line because it wasn't going to be a situation where I was going to put myself or my family in harm's way. Right. And so from that standpoint, um, I just knew well, I can wait till I get home. Wow. So yeah, let's just jump in a little bit further. So let's just say you did. Mm-hmm. You did go to the Whites Only Water Fountain. And like I said, legally nothing would happen to you. Mm-hmm. But that look was there. Would something, was there that chance that something would happen? What could have happened? Right. I mean, tell, let's talk about the could haves. Okay. What could have happened, generally what happened in that time frame, by the time I came along, if you kind of, wow, if you got out of line, so to speak, mm-hmm. you stepped you stepped over the line, uh, some white person was probably going to get a message to your parents. Like, yeah, you need to get, get that boy back in line. And then you got back in line. You're like, I ain't doing that no more. If you didn't get in line, if you just decided to be a rebel, Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, every time I go to equipment, I'm going right to that whites only water fountain. I don't care who's looking. Yeah. Probably by the time it got dark, you would you would feel it. You would feel it because wow. the KKK was still very prevalent. At the, I've, I have seen a KK march in equipment. Wow. Yeah. As a matter of fact, one of the most telling images that I ever had, you know, people talk about the KKK but until you see it man this thing is is amazing there was a um at that time because you know the the 
uh, blacks were generally a little more poor than the, the, the whites. I remember there was a couple, there was an older couple, just before you get in equipment, um, they, lived, they had a pretty sizable property and um, they used to always give us, give my mom, like they had some extra clothes and stuff like that. They would give them to her so that she could mm. give them to us. And, uh, and I remember going over to that house many days to get stuff that she had given to mama. Right. But I remember this one time, man, we went through and there was a little kid standing at the edge of the road that turns to go down to that house. And he had on the full garm, uh, garment of the KKK. It was a little kid. He couldn't have been no more about four or five years old standing right beside his daddy because they was having a Klan meeting at that house. And they had a big old sign that says, white only. Wow. Whites only. And I remember passing by and I was like, oh, my gosh, man. We have been into that down that road to that house so many times. And so a lot, I don't know what the percentage, but it was a lot of people that we saw on a day-to-day -day basis that were really nice to you. Right. But if you got out of line, you're going to get a chance to see the other side. And what that would normally start off with, they may, by that time, by the time I came along, they'd probably get a word to your, to your parents, like, yeah, you need to get that boy in line. And then we just knew, like, can't do that anymore. Wow. That's crazy. Well, let me, let me share a quick story with you about uh, <laughs> one of my times in Mississippi dealing mm -hmm. with the KKK. So before we used to sell insurance. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was getting into the insurance business, mm -hmm. I was down there doing my training. And I was out with my trainer, and uh, we went to this house. Mm -hmm. And we were pulling up, and as soon as, you know, I'm from Detroit. Mm -hmm. I'm, not a, I'm not a country guy. Right. So as we're pulling up, I'm, when you grow up in Detroit, you learn to, you know, be aware of your mm -hmm. surroundings. So as we're pulling up, I'm seeing KKK paraphernalia all over this house. Mm -hmm. So instantly, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. I'm not from down here. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I'm at. So mm -hmm. at this point, I'm terrified. Right. So I can't remember the guy's name who I was uh, training with at that time. I'm like, you sure you want to go in here? Mm -hmm. He was like, yeah, there's money in this house. I'm mm -hmm. like, okay. Mm -hmm. Me, <laughs> I'm going to keep an eye on everything just to make sure everything is good. So mm -hmm. we get in there, and the guy was disabled. And... I, once you walk in there, I'm telling you, just all kinds. It's almost like a basketball player with all his trophies in mm -hmm. there. Like you saw the, the robe and yep. all this other paraphernalia, and I'm just nervous the whole time. Sure enough, we signed this guy up oh, for, for insurance because we were saving him a lot of money. And at, at that one, I'm sitting there thinking, like, hmm, apparently the real color that really matters is green. Absolutely. But, yeah, that whole time I was terrified. And, and that, <laughs> that's, once again, you just kind of know. Yeah. Growing up there, you was with Scotty. Um, you just know. Scotty knew that, quite frankly, yeah, that dude is a member of KKK, but that wasn't what was important to him that day. Right. What was important to him was saving him some money. Exactly. And if you're going to save him some money, man, you welcome up in there. Now, if his boys come by, he probably call you the N-word and do all that, but he's still going to sign that paper. Right. And so the system down there, yep, black, white, but it was always green. Right. Always. The reason that they were so in interested in keeping uh, – keeping a system in place, even with us, because we had a large family. We was going to go out there. Sometimes they would call uh, either mama or dad and say, you know, could you send some of them boys, and that's how they say, send some of them boys over there to help me uh, get these watermelons out of this field. Right. So, yep, we're going to go over there. The promise to us was we're going to bring home a few watermelons. But to them, man, they just got a whole field cleared for free, exactly. and they was going to go sell those watermelons. They weren't giving us jack. Right. And so it was always, man, you know, racism is always about money, man. You know, it's funny. I have like this philosophy in my head, and you might have heard it from, from a pretty famous poets named the Wu-Tang Clan. They have this uh, song called Cream, Cash Rules Everything Around that's, Me. That's exactly right. And just me, just me thinking, like, at the end of the day, everything comes back to money, in my opinion. So I think... The reason why a lot of these systems, the way things are, is because money don't want, and why we're getting a lot of fight back from is because they don't want to mess up the money. That's exactly right. So, just a side note. That's exactly right. So uh, let's jump back into uh, your life at okay at high school. <laughs> All right. Uh, what was it like in your time in uh, Quitman High School? What, well, first, what, what year did you graduate? Nineteen eighty-six. Ooh, that's that's the thirty years ago, man. That's the year before. <laughs> I was born a year before that, man. Yeah, so uh, thirty yeah. years ago, I remember when you were born. Man. <laughs> <laughs>
So like during your time at at high, in uh, Quitman High School, pretty much at that time, like you said, integration was good and, and set in, and so there really wasn't too many racial issues going on at that time. Not a lot, not a lot. Everybody just kind of understood this, this is what I do, and this is what I, how I'm gonna do what I do in this system. Okay. Uh, I kind of talked to you about this before, but a little mm-hmm. birdie told me, and I'm not exactly sure what it was, but you received a, kind of a prestigious award down mm-hmm. there. Can you talk about that for a second? So you mentioned uh, a school that were in the in the city of, of Quitman. So you had the segregated schools. You had Shirley Orange uh, School, high school, or whatever it was, right. and then you had Zach Huggins. And once everything was integrated, it just became Quitman High School. Right. Uh, but Quitman High School is the former Zach Huggins school. Right. I don't even know who Zach Huggins was. <laughs> I do know he was some white dude. I okay. know that, but I have no idea. But the one of the highest awards each year that is awarded to a student athlete is a award called the Zach Huggins Award. And um, prior to 1986, I believe, I do believe 1986 was the first year that they gave the award as a single award to an African-American, that would be yours truly. Okay. Prior to that, now there were other winners who were African-American, but what would happen was because that award was so prestigious um, and the system was so strong, if there came out to, if it came out a uh, African-American that was deserving of that award, Rather than just give it, so say you you were graduating, say you graduated in 1984. Right. In 1984, since I graduated in 86, in 1984, if you was the student athlete that deserved the Zach Huggins Award, you couldn't get that by yourself. Okay. So what they do, they have a co-winner. So they'd find a white uh, student athlete mm-hmm. and give two awards just to give you yours, but they couldn't give you yours by, by yourself. yourself. Okay. Yeah. But in 1986, I was certainly blessed. Um, I not only was a, um, I was a really good athlete, if I can say so myself. <laughs> um, football, basketball, ran a little track here and there. But I was, I was a very, quite frankly, a fairly elite athlete who also was a superior academic student. Okay. And so um, I didn't. I'm trying to remember where I graduated in my class, and our class was one of the uh, one of the leading class academically in in quite frankly in the history of that school. Wow. We set the pace and the precedent for some of the testing that was going to take place after us. Um, I wasn't like in the top five percent. Right. I was in like the top five wow. of uh, academics uh, in the in the school, and so I really had no peers. When right. it came to it, so they really couldn't find anyone justifiably to add with me. Right. So I actually was the single winner in 1986 of the Zach Huggins Award. Wow. Yeah. So I would imagine uh, Paul Jim and Angry were pretty had the chest puffed up a little bit about that. There. Now, my father, you know him. Uh, <laughs> he's a different dude. Okay. I told you at that time, man. He didn't talk. So you didn't never know whether he was proud or not. And that wasn't that important to me. I knew he knew. Right. So I was cool. Okay. I was cool. Um, my father that I'm aware of came to exactly one of my football games in the three years that I played high school ball. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked when I saw him. I happened to be on the field. I looked around and I was like, there daddy is. But that wasn't our relationship, man. Right. It was just the fact that he was who he was. Man, he was Superman. You ain't got to do that <laughs> to be Superman. You're just Superman. Right. But my mom, uh, she actually came to the award uh, ceremony that, that morning. Her and and, uh, and Janie, they came out and because uh, they got a phone call that I was actually going to be winning this thing. And right. they, they showed up. And, man, yeah, they were very proud. Very, very proud. Wow. So uh, what I heard from some previous people was that basically before you – no one had played football. From what the story I was told, Willie was the, well, he was the oldest. He yep. played football. He ended up breaking his leg. Correct. So after that, uh, Aunt Ray wasn't having no more football because she wasn't taking care of nobody with no broken leg. But you were the first. Not quite. Really? That, that's almost accurate. Okay. Um, it was me and your Uncle Edward. Okay. Yeah, so Edward played. He We played at the same time, though obviously he's older than me. So I was actually 
um, playing in junior high, and he was playing on the high school team. Mm -hmm. So it was actually – it started again. It went from Willie, uh, Skip Roy, Skip uh, Red, Red, Skip Jimmy, Skip Grip, Johnny as you know him, yep. Larry, Claude, and then Edward and myself actually got a chance to play. So how did how did you two get to war down, boy? War down. <laughs> <laughs> no, we. I, I really don't know, man. I really don't know because um, I expressed that I really want to play. Well, I do know. I do know. That's that's not true. I expressed that I want to play, but by that time, you had Willie, Roy, Red, Jimmy Ray, Grip, Larry. Claude, you had seven dudes who also was putting pressure on her. Oh, okay. So they was actually advocating for us, like, oh, you ought to let him play. You ought to let them boys play. You know, Willie, and Willie was one of the main vocal uh, brothers, like, yeah, that happened to me. That don't mean it's going to happen to them. Right. You ought to let them play. So I and Edward, we expressed it. So because it was uh, Edward, me, and David played football. Okay. Yeah. But we expressed interest, and then we had the older dudes that was, like, really advocating behind the scenes. And eventually, she 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 relented and let us let us play. All right. So let's go to your, your senior year. You, you are top athlete, top student. What was what was your senior year like as far as, you know, prom, graduation? What was that, that year like for you? Senior year, um, well, first of all, my high school time was absolutely – amazing um i don't think there's many high school students that could have experienced any greater than what i experienced but that being said um we experienced it in a system that quite frankly it's just what it was man right you didn't think about it uh you and i talked that as a matter of fact i brought my yearbook today just to show you um so one of the um the who's who uh, awards, and I think they probably have those at all the schools, like right. you know, Mr. and Mrs., whatever high school most likely to succeed, most popular, most popular, yeah. all that stuff. Right. So they, we did the same stuff in 1986, uh, but still, yet and still at 1986, there were some systems that were still in place. Right. And so my high school, uh, it's kind of funny when I think about it because one, I never. It never was a thing then. When I look back on it, it's like, wow, I guess that did happen. So let's talk about prom. Okay. <laughs> so proms, uh, we were fully integrated, uh, played football, went to class. Uh, we went on trips with an uh, integrated class. But prom, prom night, we had the white people had their prom and the black people had their prom. Wow. And that's just how it was. And not only that, um, during football season, we played football on Friday nights. We, I mean, when we had a solid team, I, I, I was a part of some of three years of really good football. Um, so we played a game on Friday night from seven o'clock till about, I think the game was probably about eight thirty, quarter nine. Right. And there, what we used to call the dance. There's a building in equipment called a multi-purpose building. And there was a DJ um, that was in the city that would sponsor these dances. All he was doing was spinning records. Right. and had all these high school students come, and I think we was paying like $2 to get in. But, man, he was making a killing because <laughs> that thing would be packed. Right. That, that building probably holds about a good 800 to 1,000 people, and it would literally be packed. Wow. So he was making a killing. Every Friday night that there was a home game, there was a dance. Right. And when the dance was taking place, all the black people went to the multi-purpose building and we got it in. But there was also a dance at the National Guard Armory right. in the same city, and that was just for the white people. Wow. And only if someone intentionally did something to cause there to be a overlap Mm -hmm. Would there be an overlap? For instance, okay. I knew I was extremely popular. Right. Extremely popular with everybody. So I actually was afforded some privileges that everybody else wasn't, but I knew how far to take it. Right. So I remember going down to the National Guard Army one night, but I had already announced to all of my white classmates, hey, you guys having a dance? I'm going to come check you guys out. 
Mm-hmm. And they was like, yeah, Bobby Joe, you ought to come. And I'm like, I don't know about this. <laughs> but I went. Right. One time. Went in there. And I remember while there was a parent at the door. And um, the first thing the parent did, she looked at me. And it was almost like she was trying to decide, like, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And then when she recognized me, she was like, okay, yeah, it's Bobby Joe. So got in. Did nothing happen, man. They treated me real good. Went in there. They was dancing like, you know, Caucasians dance. It was kind of funny. Uh, they was doing their little Carlton stuff, and right. it was funny. Uh, stayed there probably a good half hour, mm-hmm. and then went back to our right. dance. Okay. The white students would only come to our dance. They would do the same thing. They would announce, hey, we're coming over to, to you guys' dance. Right. And we'd tell them, like, come on. There ain't nothing gonna happen to you. Trust me, I got you. They would only come if they got drunk. Really? They had to get enough liquid courage in them because the system said you're at the multi-purpose building, you're at the National Guard Armory, and that's how it is. And so we worked in the system and it didn't matter. I mean, because the people I really wanted to hang with was at the multi-purpose building. The people they wanted to hang with was at the National Guard. It just didn't matter. But they would come down and it was usually, it was actually usually the girls. So these uh, Caucasian girls Mm -hmm. who were our our classmates, very cool with us, they would show up. And once they show up, it was like, okay, we got you. We're going to get you in, and we're going to dance, and ain't nothing going to happen, and nothing ever did. So it wasn't like that moment where you walk in there, and the music stops, and everybody nah, just turns around. Nah, it's like, nope, okay. Nope, nope, wasn't that at all. Okay. So was prom sort of the same way, or was it still? Prom was, uh, there was never any crossover in the proms. Wow. Never. Okay. Because, and the prom was such a big deal because, I mean, that thing was so well planned out. Right. So, the proms may not even taken place in Quitman. They may have taken place in Meridian. And so, man, we wouldn't didn't care nothing about no white people at that point. We was like, we got to get the prom in. So right. we had our little tux on and all that stuff. And we, so we didn't care where theirs was. I, I don't even think I knew when theirs was taking place. Okay. Yeah. So that was never any crossover on that. Yeah. I, I was talking to uh, Rio last night mm-hmm. and uh, I, I asking him about his prom. And he was saying that he thinks that his class, which was 2006, might have been the first combined integrated prom. Yeah, I can believe that. So now I want to say I graduated in 2003. I want to say it was 2002 or 2003. I think I talked to Ebony or mm-hmm. Felicia, and they were telling me that they were going to two proms. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, maybe, you know, they had like a boyfriend or like another school or something. Mm-hmm. Like they was like, no, it's the same school, except there's a black and white prom. And this is 2003. Right. So I'm, you know, here I am living in Detroit. That idea didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, why would you have two proms for the same school? I mm-hmm. mean, it sounds great, but when I found out they were segregated, it made no sense to me. And the thing that it was still going on mm-hmm. in 2003, and if Rio was right, it only ended in 2006. But it shows you how slow the progression was, but it shows you the pro- progression. Right. Because uh, Ebony and Alyssa were saying they were going to two proms. I wasn't going to two proms. I was going to one. Right. It wasn't going to be no, I'm going to go to our prom, and then, and then I'm going to go to, no, it wasn't going to be that. Right. So there was a progression, very slow progression, because, so let's say that it got to that point by 2003, 2002, 2003. In 1986, it was very cut and dry. I'm going to this prom, right? and I'm not going to that prom. And so over the course of time, it progressed all the way up maybe to by the time Rio graduated to the point where it actually was integrated. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was after that. Wow. I, it wouldn't See, it wouldn't surprise me if it was still going, going on today. On, right. Yeah. Because just show you how engulfed in the system that I was, I didn't know it was anything wrong with it. Right. Until I was in college and someone asked me, why you have two of these individuals? Because they was looking at my yearbook. Right. And then for the first time in my life, that's when I thought there was something wrong with it. So it took me to graduate, getting outside, and of get it. out of get outside of it. Wow. And somebody else. So if when you were talking to Alyssa or or uh, uh, Ebony, they didn't see anything wrong with it. Right. I mean. And I want to I want to talk to uh, Felicia and Quisha about it because they live in Detroit, mm-hmm. so they they've seen both sides of it. They've seen you know they grew up and spent a lot of time in Detroit, but they you know graduated mm-hmm. down there. So 
I can only imagine what it was like for them, you know, being in Detroit, you know, for, for the most part, Detroit is a, you know, mainly a black city, yep. but the idea of having two different problems is just. Right. But, it, but keep in mind, keep in mind, you, your experience and Felicia and Quisa's experience is going to be very different. The reason being they were born in Mississippi. Okay. So they understood that system. They moved to Detroit, got introduced to another system. But when they came back, trust me, fell right back. Fell in. right back in. Wow. You were never. You only visited Mississippi. Right. So it was always going to be more foreign to you. And like, why in the world? And what in the world? But to them, it's like, okay, we're in Detroit. We do Detroit. We're in the SIP. We do the SIP. And I guarantee you. It may have thought about it, but they fell in lockstep. Wow. Well, I didn't. Uh, I said I keep you for thirty minutes. We got still got. I'm good, man. Okay. Well, we'll keep going then. Well, you brought up your time in in college. What what college did you go to? <laughs> That's always an interesting question. Oh. Now that when everybody anyone asked me that question, so I graduated in 1990 with a business administration degree with emphasis in management from Livingston University in Livingston, Alabama. Okay. Now, that seemed like a straightforward question, straightforward answer. The problem is, at some point after that, they changed the name of the school. Really? Yeah. So, <laughs> the name of the school now is in the same place. It's the same school, but the name of the school is University of West Alabama. And so, I personally graduated from Livingston University, <laughs> but technically, I graduated from University of West, West Alabama. Alabama. Okay. So, you were, you were saying that with the prom situation, that, that was your first time, you know, really being outside of equipment and mm -hmm. people asking you, what was that like? Mm -hmm. So how, how much of a, of a culture shock was it going from equipment, uh, Mississippi to what, what city was Livingston. Livingston. So what was that culture shock like for you? Oh, uh, it was just a smooth transition because Livingston University is a primarily Caucasian school. Okay. And so, um, the same systems or some of the same systems that I saw in equipment, I saw in, Livingston. As a matter of fact, um, my fr we, we was on the quarter system at that time. So mm -hmm. uh, my freshman quarter in an intramural football game where I think it was the Kappas. The Kappas were playing Delta Chi. So a white fraternity and a traditionally uh, black fraternity. The Kappas had recruited some guys who weren't Greek on their team and there was a uh, a Delta Chi, huge white boy, huge, gigantic. <laughs> this white guy, um, during that football game, came up behind one of the guys who had been recruited on the Kappa team, but it wasn't a Kappa. Um, and they, I don't know what had happened in that play before, but he came up behind him, spin him around, and put a forearm right in his mouth, laid the front of his, like his Four bottom teeth, they literally laid down in his mouth. Wow. Put him, put him, I mean, put him down. And off the heels of that, and I went to Livingston. I ain't have none of this going on in equipment. I went to Livingston, Alabama, which is like an hour away, but went right. there. And we had these meetings that was taking place. All the black students uh, were meeting at the student union building at like 10 o'clock at night. And we was trying to organize what we was going to do. Mm -hmm. And I was scared to death. I was like, man. I ain't never had to do anything like this. Right. So I get it. You got to be a part of it. You want to be a part of the solution. But this wasn't my world. Right. It, quite frankly, it wasn't because that actually never happened. So basically the idea of even organizing was kind of scary for you. Because it didn't, it, it hadn't ever been a part of my past. And it didn't personally, I didn't see at the time how it personally affected me okay and so again a system that sheltered me mm -hmm. some ways in a a vacuum of vulnerability mm -hmm. and a vacuum of naivete because when i got there and saw actually more stuff going on in livingston than i ever saw in equipment then it started becoming very clear to me I was going to have to be a part of something that was bigger than me. Wow. And so I, I, I struggled with that at first. I was like, man, I just came here to get education. Right. I didn't come over here to defend this dude. And 
and the, then it was all crazy because the the guy when I ended up talking to him, man, he was he he was mad at the white dude, but he was really mad at the cappers because they didn't do anything. They didn't about do it. anything about it. Wow. And so now I feel like okay, I've got to get into this beef with a dude that didn't do anything to me. And there was enough people there that day because the one thing I will tell you in equipment, uh, there was a let's back up the equipment real quick. Okay. There was a situation when I was in high school on, on a um, it was a. A football. We had had a football game that night, and so we had we had a large, fairly large team. So we took two buses, and the upperclassmen rode on the one bus. Upper upperclass starters and upperclassmen rode on the first bus. The um, lower classmen or the B team would ride on the second bus. Mm-hmm. And there was a situation. Um, uh, there was a a white football player on our team decided to use the N-word with one of our black players on our team. Mm-hmm. And that particular night, I think we had lost the game. So I was in a bad mood anyway. Right. I was looking for something. And um, the the young man, the African-American that got called the N-word, instead of dealing with it, he ran and found me. Okay. So we had stopped to get something to eat, I think, at McDonald's. And he was like, Bobby Joe, need your help. Uh, I forgot the guy's name at this point, the white guy. But whatever his name was, he owned the bus, and he called me the N-word. And my first thought was, what did you do about it? But then I knew what he did about it. He came and got me. So I went over on the bus, uh, saw my dude, and uh, as soon as he saw me coming, he started backing up. He started, like, literally over over the seats backing up. Wow. And um, I didn't recognize it, but it was a, now a posse behind me. But I didn't need a posse. I was I was going to take care of it. My point is, when something happened, by the time I rolled through, no, we dealt with it. Right. Uh, we fought white people, man. Really? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And if we waxed them, we knew they weren't going to tell it. They, they was only going to tell it. If they got the best of us, they weren't going to get the best of us. Right. And so this, 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 this. Now, fast forward this to Livingston. My thought was, if this white dude hit that black guy and a whole team of black guys standing there watching him, that should have been dealt with right, right there. Right. Why are you calling me to a meeting? Because let's say it happened like on a on a Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Here it is Sunday night. You calling me to a meeting at the student union building at 10 o'clock talking about organizing and marching and doing they they brought in um older people who had been a part of the civil rights movement and it right. was and so now I'm like you just old and cranky that ain't got nothing to do with me so but I didn't understand right I really didn't understand I didn't understand my social responsibility to my people at that time right and it was actually in that situation in a primarily primarily uh Caucasian school that and this stuff didn't happen all the time, but periodically this little stuff would happen. Right. And it just made me a lot more socially conscious, even more so than growing up in equipment. Wow. Well, let me ask you a quick question. Um, are you familiar with the situation that happened at Eastern Michigan? Um, I want to say about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Well, my niece goes to Eastern Michigan mm-hmm. and she was, she was there for that. So uh, for people that are listening, that don't know um, on one of the buildings, KKK was spray mm-hmm. painted on there and go home in words was mm-hmm. spray painted on one of the buildings. So she was, and I'm going to put this episode out probably in a couple of weeks so people mm-hmm. can hear the whole story. But yeah, she was a part of some of those meetings and the, the protest that happened at the football game. And to hear that, you know, this was 1980, late eighties when this happened to you mm-hmm. and to hear that it's just still happening mm-hmm. here in 2016 lets you know that it's a lot of the same things going on. Correct. But one thing that I, I really commend the students at Eastern Michigan for doing was they, right away, they, they start organizing, like, what are we going to do about Absolutely. this? Absolutely. And they weren't happy with how the president responded to us. So they marched to the president's house and said, hey, what are you going to do about mm-hmm. this? And they still didn't like these responses. So they said, okay, we're going to the football game. We're going to march on the field until you actually address what happened. So, mm-hmm. like you were saying, like, it, waiting for waiting and having all these meetings and not actually doing anything about it gets nothing done. You have to address it right then and there. So absolutely, it's good to know that uh, 
my niece comes from a long line of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we get a, we get a little rowdy when stuff needs to take place. Even if we don't know that we're supposed to be rowdy at first, it don't take us long to catch up. So right. So after you uh, your time in Alabama, you mm-hmm. moved to Pennsylvania. Correct. So now I would imagine the culture shock comes in now. Uh yes. Coming from the south and moving to the north. Yes, but I got a I probably got a twist to it. Okay. So yes, cultural shock. Oh my God, I I can never. I'll never forget. Uh, I moved. I graduated. Um, I actually graduated. Finished up my classes at Livingston early in in 1990. I finished up in like uh, March of uh, 1990. Graduation wasn't until June, so I, I actually uh, finished up a quarter early, and um, so I didn't go. Didn't wasn't in school the spring quarter. Anyway, I went ahead and moved to uh, just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And um, didn't even go back for my graduation. Matter of fact, they mailed me my my degree. It was like, just give me my stuff. I already know <laughs> I, I got it in. So, right. but culture shock, absolutely. Uh, never forget being on thirtieth and Market in Philadelphia. Never seen that many people in one space at one time in my life. It was noon. It was rush hour. People was coming and going. They was man like like ants. And the first thing I thought about was like, man, I see why this city is so violent. There's too many people in this city. <laughs> Culture shock, out, out, unbelievable. But once I got adapted to the culture, mm-hmm. I actually saw more racism in Pennsylvania than I ever saw in Mississippi or Alabama combined. Really? The KKK marched in Pennsylvania more times than I ever saw them march in Mississippi or Alabama. The racism and the um, the prejudice mentality, it just manifested itself differently, but it was just as strong. Wow. In Mississippi, what I could appreciate, if a white person didn't like you, they're going to tell you to your face. Right. And you had to decide what you're going to do about it. You either knuckle up or you walked away or you did something. Right. But in Pennsylvania, and they were never going to tell you, dude. They were stabbing you in the back. They was holding you back. They was actually literally working against you behind the scene while smiling in your face. And it took me a minute to get used to that because I wasn't used to that. Right. I was used to white people like being bold with it. Like, like I'm going to call you the N-word to your face. And you can do something or don't do nothing. But this is what it is. Right. But there, oh my gosh, man. I had to learn that system, which was actually worse. And, you know, growing up in Detroit, I, I agree with you 100%. And I, w- I was telling somebody, that, and I don't think they understood what I was trying to say to them, but, like, <laughs> I was telling them, I appreciate racism in the South more than I do in the North because I know exactly they, what you they mean. Let, they let you know right then and there. Yeah. Yeah. Because yep. I can remember, I can remember, um, like, Daddy would have, we, he had a little, tried to do a little battery company you know he was rebuilding car batteries down in mississippi man my, mm-hmm. my daddy was an innovator man. <laughs> tell you. but people would always come by and i remember this one white guy he had three sons that was kind of my age edward's age and one of our cousins ronnie about the same age as us mm-hmm. and so daddy and this white dude was out under the carport talking whatever they were talking and me edward and ronnie we went down the road a little bit down the hill with these three white guys and they got down there and called us the n-word so we got busy on them and what i told you a minute ago they were only gonna tell if they won right man we waxed them and when they went back to get with their dad they ain't said a word they ain't say nothing wow because but my thing was they told us to our face you the n-word right but when I got to Pennsylvania, man, that was a whole different thing, man. That was a whole different thing. And it took me a little while. People talk faster, mm-hmm. but they're more slick. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but it was, um, it, it was a culture shock, no doubt. All right. So at this time in Pennsylvania is when you started your, your family. Mm-hmm. So what is, and let's kind of transition over to your life as a, Married man mm-hmm. and as a man of the cloth. Mm-hmm. What is it like starting a family in 
the climate that you're not as you're, you're getting used to, but you're not exactly used to. Mm-hmm. Like being a man who grew up in the South, you know, mm-hmm. things are a little bit different up here yeah. in the North. So what is it like starting your family up in the North with a Southern upbringing? Well, the, I, I'd say it actually probably not that much more unique than anyone else. The thing that uh, the Southern guys, uh, we, we had a reputation whether we earned it or not. We were always going to have a reputation. And in many cases it was true. We was going to work hard. So we came to the north, man. When I got there, it was like, I can go get it. The thing amazed me, man, is like every go to the mall and every store had a help wanted sign in there. I was like, man, I can hustle up here. Because we were trained how to work. Um, When I I started the family, by the time uh, I had been in, I got to Pennsylvania in 1990. I got married in 97. So I'd been there seven years. I was very, very, very adapted to cold weather and pace of life and talking proper with the <laughs> air quotes if you will right. uh, my language my 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 um the dialect almost had changed man so i had a more of a north northeastern accent mm-hmm. a little bit more um i knew how to handle myself um and i believe i believe this and you being a single man so here's your marriage advice right here right now <laughs> on, on your on your podcast there's a a fundamental question I believe that every good man has within himself that he has to answer when it comes down to uh, getting married and starting a family. Okay. That fundamental question is, can I provide for my family? And until that question is sufficiently answered, every man is still going to go about their business either making it a good answer or a bad answer, but go about their business trying to figure out, can I? And that fundamental question for me was, can I provide for my wife and then my two kids without any help from someone else? I don't want to have to call home and ask mom and daddy nothing. Right. And when I call home for them, I want to be able to get them something. I want to break them off a little something. Right. But can I pay my bills? Can I keep a job? Can I get some benefits? Can I do that? And that first year of marriage, that quite frankly was the central question that was being asked. But I had been in that area long enough, I knew how to hustle. And right. when I say hustle, I'm talking legal stuff. I, I knew how to, because when I got married, I had two jobs. I worked a full-time job at a waste energy facility. I was, um, I was a supervisor there in Chester, Pennsylvania. And my work hours were beautiful, man. I, I went to work at uh, from 5.30 in the morning till 1 p.m. Got off work, and then I had a part-time job at the Philadelphia airport working for United, uh, U.S. Air, uh, working baggage. So I go to work, come home, and go to work, and I was knocking it down, man. And so I, once that question was answered in my mind, then it was just living, man, learning how to be a husband and Right. And eventually learn how to be a father. But as long as that question, can you provide for your family without anybody else? And I, I, I'm firmly convinced that that's the fundamental question every good man has to answer for themselves. Right. And once that question is answered, man, you just everything else just kind of falls in line. Do your that. thing, man. Wow. All right. Well, that. Answers one of the questions I have for you. I was going to ask you, how do you stay married this long? But all right, there you go. Well, you can ask the question, and I can I can answer it a little bit more in depth if you ask him that question. Um, no, we'll, we'll move on a little. Bit. Okay, we'll move on a little bit. So, at this time, you're in, in Pennsylvania, and you made a move to the good old state of Michigan, where it's a little little bit different. A little different. A little different, Chester. So, what was that that difference like from Mississippi to Pennsylvania to Michigan? Michigan. Uh, first of all, before we moved, um, I had decided I'm never leaving Pennsylvania. I loved it. Oh really? my God, man. I had become boss. What? <laughs> I was, I'm loving it, man. I ain't never leaving this, this place. Right. And so my job was tight. My family was tight. I had a house. I had two cars. I had, <laughs> I had two cars. I had three houses because I had some rental properties, wow. man. I was, I was boss. And so I wasn't leaving ever, but my wife had one of the greatest opportunities for her and for her, I quit my job 
I left a job that I'd been on for 13 years. Wow. Boss, Doc. I had a life. I had friends. I knew where to get stuff. I just knew how to live there and, and really do it well. Right. Left all of that to move to, uh, to Michigan for my wife to have a better opportunity. She had a good opportunity in Pennsylvania. Yeah, in Pennsylvania. She had a better opportunity at Pfizer here in Kalamazoo. And so for that, I, I moved. What was it like? It was painful. Wow. It was painful. It was painful, painful for this reason. You had extremely slow Mississippi. Right. Had extremely fast greater Philadelphia. Michigan was kind of in between. Right. So I had to figure out whether I need to go fast or need to go slow. But I couldn't do both because that wasn't. That that wasn't Michigan. Right. The other thing about Michigan that made it kind of tough for me was I couldn't get a job. So now that question comes back. Right. Can I provide for my family? My wife had a great opportunity, and that's why we came out here. And for me, if my wife made a million dollars a year, that still wouldn't drive what I needed to do. Right. I still, still it, need to answer. I still need to answer that question. And it wasn't that I need to make more money than her. It's simply. I need to know that I can take care of my family. And so her success never dictated to me my responsibility or lack thereof. I still need to make sure that everything was everything. Right. And so I got here, I couldn't get a job. Now, the amazing thing, it wasn't that there were no jobs here. I couldn't get a job because I kept getting told I was overqualified, which I was. Wow. For this market, I remember deciding I took a year off just to be a, a stay-at-home dad, just to really bond with my kids, right. and that was great. Um, but when I decided to go back to work, um, my professional experience was more uh, applicable in a bigger market than Kalamazoo, Michigan. So maybe if you had moved to Detroit, it might have been if I had easier. been if I had moved to Detroit, you talking about boss. It would have been on because and, and Detroit was a slightly smaller market than what I had come from out of because I dealt primarily in Philadelphia and New York. Right. But my skill set was more applicable for Detroit. Just so happened. Detroit was on the other side of the state. Three hours. Yeah. Two, three hours like away. That. Yeah. So uh, being in a very small market like Kalamazoo, um, I was clearly told up front in my face i remember uh, i went for a temp service job I said man i just need a little job to put a couple of dollars in my pocket i don't really care what it is i've already done the corporate thing man i've been in the corporate uh boardrooms and made multi-million dollar deals i've done that stuff that actually don't excite me i've done it mm -hmm. i remember this lady she said i have a job right here you probably could do well with that job but i am not gonna give it to you I said, wow. why? She said, you are overqualified for this. You won't stay there that long. And I'm not going to give it to you. Job right there. I She's pointed to it. Wow. And I was like, my goodness. So that was my world for a minute. Mm -hmm. And eventually, um, now I was okay because, um, you know, I, like I said, when I moved out here, I had, when I was in Pennsylvania, I had three houses. No, I had four houses because I had three rental properties. Right. Um, but I still had those properties when I moved out here, so I was still getting money. But the money was coming from Pennsylvania. It wasn't Michigan. Wouldn't it was a state that wouldn't. This is how I termed it. It was a state that wouldn't yield her fruits to me. Right. Cause like this, what like what year was this? This when was in two thousand. We moved here in two thousand five. Right. So between two thousand five. And quite frankly, all the way up to almost 2000, to the end of 2007, it was just, man, yeah, struggle. It was definitely a tough time. Yeah, there. yeah. The economy wasn't great, right? but it, was, it wasn't even just that. It was more. And then um, in um, January 2008, I started working uh, for Target. That's okay. when I worked there. And it kind of turned around after that. Okay. All right, let's pause that conversation right there um so far great conversation with my uncle mr bobby mckenzie um soon i will put out the second part of this conversation where we jump into more of the current issues going on in america um 
mind you that this conversation took place in 2016. This was uh, <laughs> this was before our presidential election, and we kind of touched on uh, a little bit of the e election, the campaign going on at that time. We talked about um, a lot of the issues going on in the black community, especially with police brutality. So stay tuned. That second part of this episode will be dropping very, very soon. And uh, thank you all for listening, man. I know it's been a long time, man. I uh, <laughs> it, 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 it feels weird, like, jumping back into the chair editing a podcast again. Um, not that I haven't done a podcast. For those of you wrestling and MMA fans, make sure you check out Knockouts and Three Counts. Um, uh-oh. Yeah. See, I'm going to leave that in. I'm going to leave that in. (laughs) I could edit that out, but I'm going to leave that in. Phone over here buzzing. I forgot to turn my phone off. So, let's you know I got to get back in the swing of things. But, yeah, all you wrestling and MMA fans, make sure you check out Knockouts and Three Counts. Uh, Follow the Facebook page. Follow the Twitter and Instagram at KO3CPod. That's KO3CPod. Um... The next episode that we're going to be doing, we're going to have WWE Hall of Famer. Yes, you heard me. WWE Hall of Famer, Tony Atlas. Man, <laughs> I, I, let, me, let me talk about that real quick. We, we, we've gotten so many great opportunities, you know, being at the Podcast Detroit studio. Make sure you check out Podcast Detroit as well. Um, for us to be able to get a WWE Hall of Famer on the show, and this would be our second one. Our first WWE Hall of Famer was Booker T. So for us to get a second WWE Hall of Famer on our show, man, is, is I'll get into the story, or by the time I put this out, I probably would have already gotten into the story of why um, I made the switch to doing that show and kind of gave up All Stake No Sizzle for a while. But I'm looking forward to doing that conversation. Hopefully you all tune in for that one as well. Um, I will post all the information on all of the All State No Sizzle pages, all the social media, all that good stuff. So, And while I'm speaking about that, make sure you subscribe to All State No Sizzle on SoundCloud, iTunes, basically anywhere you can find a podcast. Make sure you subscribe. And, you know, rate it too. That nice little rating lets the people know, hey, we like this show. <laughs> it's been gone for a while. We want it back. Um, make sure you check out all the social media. All Steak No Sizzle on Instagram. You can hit me up at Devin63. That's D-E-V-I-N-T-H-E-6-3 on Twitter. Uh, check out the All Steak No Sizzle Facebook page. Also, check out the Knockouts and Three Counts Facebook page while you're at it. And hell, while you're at it, check out the Reality News Era group on Facebook where we talk wrestling. And uh, if you're looking for a car, make sure you check out SouthfieldQualityCars.com. Um, once you go on there, you see the vehicle you would like to purchase. Go inside to uh, Southfield Quality Cars and use the reference code 19309. That's 19309, and you will receive $500 off on your purchase. Yeah, I jumped into promo mode. <laughs> but, uh,. Thank you all for listening to my conversation with my Uncle Bobby. This is part one, part two, uh, part two. I'm going to leave that in there. I'm going to leave it in there. I got to get back in the swing of things. Uh, Part two will be coming out very, very soon. So make sure you pay attention for that. So until next time, thank you all for listening. Peace. Peace.